Hey everyone, welcome to Ask Shane Anything. This is a show where we get to connect on a more personal level, aside from Game Face, obviously, but this is where you guys get to ask me any question you want. And literally, I'll generally answer just about any question as long as they're not too personal. Now this show is a reward for all our patrons, but particularly for people who pledge at $7 or more per month. Everybody gets to watch the show, but only the people who pledge at that tier or higher get to ask questions for the show. Now, this is an ex example of where I kind of had one extra question. We usually answer three questions in each episode, but I had one kind of dangler. So I'm just going to roll that in, and this is going to be a bigger episode of Ask Shane Anything. As usual, you guys have asked great questions. Let's get straight to them. Our first question comes from Sifted from The Sandman. Hey Shane, I'm a huge Mario Kart fan. I've bought Nintendo consoles just to play new versions of the game. Do you think Mario Kart 8 was better on the Wii U than the Switch? Not carrying a second item, I felt, pushed players to a better risk-reward model. When will we see a new iteration of the franchise, or will Nintendo continue with Mario Kart 8 supplying new track DLC while porting it to Nintendo's next console? First of all, Sandman, I am also a gigantic fan of Mario Kart. I have been since the Super Nintendo version of Mario Kart, and probably the one I've played the most as far as time-wise, probably Mario Kart 64. And that's mostly because I was in college when it came out, and me and all my friends would play. I had a lot of people to play with back then. Um, so that's probably the one I've spent the most time with. But in all honesty, I love them all. And I do enjoy all the little tweaks and changes that Nintendo makes to the franchise with each iteration. Now, specifically for Mario Kart 8, we are... <laughs> We are trailblazing here, people. We are on untreaded ground at this point with Mario Kart 8. The game is now eight years old. Eight years old. Mario Karts never last that long. Usually, I mean, I think Mario Kart 7 came out in 2011, if I remember correctly. And then Mario Kart 8 came out in 2014. So there was like a three-year gap. And that used to be typical for Mario Kart games. Now... I'm not sure what Nintendo's thinking. I mean, obviously games like Mario Kart are, they're almost like sports and that you don't want to change them too much. Like a couple tweaks here or there are okay, but you don't want to fundamentally change how you play Mario Kart. Again, it's kind of like a sport, but I would argue that this eight year period with Mario Kart 8, and maybe that was the plan all along, <laughs> eight years for Mario Kart 8, is that they want to establish a foundation for the series that everybody can learn and get good at and then apply it to their personal competitions or to esports or whatever. I am kind of surprised there hasn't been a Mario Kart esports scene. Kind of crazy to think about. But anyway, I do wonder if Nintendo is trying to create this ground zero for Mario Kart that everyone can kind of build from, and that's why they've stuck with it so long. But more likely is that this is a function of how terrible the Wii U did. Uh, Nintendo made a great Mario Kart. Mario Kart 8 on the Wii U was great. And you're asking me to compare the Wii U version to the Switch version. I'll be honest with you, I have not played the Switch version all that much. I played the living crap out of it on Wii U, and I was kind of done with it. Because typically the Mario Kart cycle lasts three years and you're ready for another one, and that's 
Kind of how long Mario Kart 8 really held my interest was a few years, and then eventually I lost interest. I Again, I know they're putting out all this track DLC right now, and some of the tracks are cool, and some of them are classics that I really like, and I get all that. But it's been eight years. So, again, back to your question about which is better. I, I don't even know, man. I mean, <laughs> I'll say this. You are definitely a bigger Mario Kart fan than I am if you have continued to play Mario Kart 8 on the Switch as much as you played it on the Wii U. Again, I fully admit that, you know, I have, have not really played it a ton on the Switch. So, which is better? I guess just the Switch, if only because the hardware is slightly more powerful um, and the game runs just a little bit better. And I guess because we've got, we've received so much DLC for the Switch version of the game and not really for the Wii U version of the game, I'd probably have to give the nod to the Switch. Um, now, the future of the franchise, what is going on here? Uh, we've been waiting for the new Mario Kart to be unveiled for at least four years now, and it just never happens. It's a little bit like Pikmin 4. <laughs> like, we had heard rumors that Pikmin 4 was done, and we just never saw it, and now finally, Nintendo just finally announced it. I really believe that what's going to happen is you're going to see the next Mario Kart be the big launch game for Nintendo's next hardware. Will it be backwards compatible with the Switch, that's that's dicey. And it's dicey because we don't know what Nintendo's new hardware is going to be like. We just don't know. Is it going to be a powerhouse or is it going to be something close to the Switch, more likely? Um, and therefore, you know, you could dual develop. You could make a game for the new Nintendo hardware and Switch at the same time. That's probably more likely. But then at the same time, then you lose the power to move hardware with it if it's multi-generational. So there's no easy or good answer to the future of Mario Kart. In my mind, Nintendo should have announced and released Mario Kart 9 five years ago. So you're probably talking to the wrong guy about this. Um, do I think Nintendo will keep supplying track DLC to Mario Kart 8? No. I think what they've announced, what Nintendo has announced, it's announced, is the last run of DLC for Mario Kart 8. And there are, I think, three waves of this current track DLC, and I think there's only one wave left. So I do think that we're kind of getting to the end of the life cycle of Mario Kart 8, and we will be moving on to Mario Kart 9, and Nintendo's also due for new hardware in the next year or two, and I don't mean like some weird reiteration of the Switch. I mean like brand new hardware. So Again, I think Mario Kart 9 is going to be a launch game for Nintendo, Nintendo's next console. And my guess is that that next console comes within a year and a half or two years from now. Um, so I do think there's going to be a little bit of a, a lull in Mario Kart. And I also think, too, that a lot of the people who are working on track DLC for Mario Kart 8 will eventually be pushed over to work on Mario Kart 9 to get the game done in time for the launch of Nintendo's next console. So... None of this is like information that I've been told by people at Nintendo or from any other contacts I have in the industry. This is just me guessing based upon my years of experience dealing with Nintendo and the Mario Kart franchise, uh, but ultimately it is just a guess. Next up, we have a question from Cinetike. I was born in 1984 and have increasingly tried to consume good journalism and content around video games. However, Increasingly, for the last few years, more and more, I've felt that the earnest and serious discussions on games have turned more into either fanboyism or cliché negativity, not to mention the multitude of clickbait content. You've been around games journalism for a long time, so how do you view the progression of video game journalism coverage over the years? Where do you see it progressing? Okay, I do feel like I've answered this 
same question that was just worded a little differently in the past on Ask Shane Anything, but I do think it's good to have the same questions asked maybe a year or two later, and that's kind of what's happening with this. And you are asking me specifically about what's going on with content lately. Um, so the first thing I would say is that I I feel like both the journalists and the viewers and the readers, people like you, Cinetike, took games journalism more seriously a long time ago. <laughs> um, and by a long, a long time ago, I mean probably like 10 years ago, really before the, the rise of YouTubers and streamers and things like that. Um, so that would be the first thing. I feel like the people who worked in games journalism back then took it more seriously than they do now. Um, I see a lot of gaffes and mistakes in games journalism now that I didn't see a lot back a decade ago or so. And then, you know, I I struggle to include streamers and influencers and YouTubers and stuff like that in the bucket of journalism. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think that most of them consider themselves to be journalists either. I think most of them, if you talk to them, they'll be like, oh, I'm not a journalist. Like, I'm just a fan. I just really love games. And I, you know, I want to share my passion with games with my audience. Totally get that. So I do struggle to put those people into the bucket of games journalism. And again, I feel like they agree with that. I don't think that they want to be considered journalists because once you're considered a journalist, suddenly there is a certain amount of expectations that are put upon you, some of which a lot of the YouTubers and streamers may not be interested in, here, in adhering to. And I get that. Like, why make your life more complicated than you need to make it? So that's the first thing. I want to kind of delineate between influencers, streamers, YouTubers, etc., and then the people who are working at more traditional journalistic outlets. Um, so... Just looking at the websites, or if there were magazines, magazines, um, but just looking at the websites, the IGNs, the GameSpots, the whatever, I honestly don't see, at least recently, a lot of change at all. I feel like everything has become extremely stagnant. And one thing that you'll find is that once an outlet finds an idea that kinda even kind of works, they will run with it and run it into the ground. So GameSpot, and this is something that really just kind of came from YouTube and GameSpot kind of adopted it. GameSpot has this series of content that it does where it brings in experts. So it'll bring in like a gun expert to talk about the guns in the new Call of Duty or the guns in the new Battlefield or whatever. And now they've expanded that out. They have like a medieval guy who comes in and talks about medieval weapons and things like that. It almost is kind of getting out of control a little bit on that front. That's what happens when it's so hard to find content that people will care about. I have been probably most frustrated working on Sifted by the audience's lack of an open mind. It, there are like three content types in games journalism that people will even bother watching. So look at it from my perspective. I'm starting a new gaming website when I launched Sifted and I have no money for marketing and 
sure, some people may be like, Shane did a great job reviewing games at all the other publications he worked at, so maybe I trust his reviews or his evaluations of games a little bit more. Fine. Get that? Or maybe they hate me and they don't trust me at all. Whatever. But that's not enough to get a new company off the ground. It's just not. So what do you have to do? You have to come up with a unique idea, which is what I did for the site itself, which is Sifted, which is this website where you can tell us what you care about and you get this custom feed of content from all your favorite content creators. You guys know what Sifted is. That was idea one, but then I needed to follow that up with the content. I needed to make content different. I needed to provide a unique selling proposition for our content to get people to subscribe and sign up and become a part of the community. And that is what I have tried to do since I launched Sifted. Every show that we launch, every idea that we come up with is something new and different that other sites and influencers and YouTubers have never done. And they all fail. They all fail. People will not even give them a chance. Even our patrons will launch a new show. People will watch like the first episode, like maybe 70% of our patrons and subscribers will watch the first episode. And then inevitably with each episode, the audience just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it's not worth doing anymore and we stop doing it. Now, the last time I checked, and this was probably a year ago, we had launched over 20 new show ideas on Sifted, either short form video series, full on shows or whatever that nobody had ever done before. And every single one of them has failed. All of them. We do them for a little while. People stop watching. We'll put them on our YouTube channel. They get no traction. They go away. And then we're left with the same thing that we always do, which is just a podcast, which is Game Face and a Q&A thing that we do with Pactor and this Q&A thing that you do with me. And that's all that you guys want to watch. It's just, it's just the truth. You're not interested in new ideas. And so it's a combination of a lack of creativity on the part of some of the publications or just a lack of a willingness to want to try things or new things or try to do new things. And you, your lack of, a, of an interest in new ideas and new types of content. Think about all the stuff that we've done, all the shows that we've had here on Sifted. We did a call-in talk show. Um, for a few months and like it was kind of hard to get people to participate but then they finally did and then by the time we got people to actually call into the show enough to do the show every week people stopped watching the show we had a show where we just fought the end bosses in game we we have launched again over 20 shows that no one has ever done before and no one gave a crap so if there's one thing i would say about games journalism games content right now is it is stagnant a F people are just doing the same stuff over and over again. Here's another podcast. Here's another let's play. Here's another Q and a session. And that's it. That's all you guys want along with reviews. Obviously it's very frustrating for somebody who has worked in this industry for so long and is sick of creating the same types of content. Do you realize how maddening that is? That may be why a lot of people get out of this long before I have. Because they get sick of doing the same thing over and over again. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That's tough for me because I can't expect the same result. The same result we've been getting isn't good enough. It needs to be better. So I can't keep doing the same things, doing Game Face over and over, doing Pactor Factor over and over, and expect our Patreon to grow. But if I try to do new things, it's rejected. So it is this weird 
catch 22 and look ultimately at the end of the day you get what you allow and you are allowing us and all these other outlets to just keep producing the same stuff over and over again and you just keep lapping it up and as long as that happens nothing's going to change games journalism content is never going to evolve it's just not so that's been a frustrating thing for me honestly is that how unwilling and i always thought that our audience were the type of people who had open minds and wanted to experience new things because they're gamers we are the people we're the forefront of this new medium we're, we were the evangelists the ones who were like this is the new hot shit and everybody's gonna love it eventually and we were right but it feels like we got into our old age and we lost that ideal that aesthetic and we've just settled into this rut of i want a podcast i want a q a and i want reviews and everything else maybe some less plays but everything else no like it's it's very frustrating and it feels like if you're from if you're coming at things from our perspective it's impossible to succeed <laughs> i feel like we've launched some pretty amazing stuff remember sifted hq that show is slick as hell had five, six different segments in it. You never knew what was going to be in it. It told, I guarantee you, every episode caught you off guard at least once. There was either a new segment in there or something in one of the segments that we've done before that just caught you off guard. Month and a half into it, you stopped watching it. So we had to stop doing it. So that's the frustrating part for me is I just feel like this entire industry is in a rut and I don't feel like there's any reward for coming up with new ideas. I mean, here's another example. New Dimension where we chronicle games going from 2D to 3D. You guys watched the first couple episodes of that? Don't care anymore. And there's so much work involved in that show that you're just like, why are we doing this? Why did we work an entire month on one 15-minute to 20-minute video that like a 1,000 people watched? You can't do it. And so that's why you keep getting the same stuff over and over again. Clickbait, it works. You're complaining about clickbait, it works. Look at all these YouTube channels, the manufactured outrage. That's really the biggest one. You guys are like moss to a flame with the manufactured outrage. Go on YouTube, people freaking out about stuff, always the most watched stuff. And therefore, again, it encourages people to keep doing it. So I'm, I hate that stuff. I'm never gonna do it. I don't want to do it. Um, and maybe that's to my detriment, but at a certain point, you have your morals and your scruples, and if you're willing to sacrifice them, that's fine. I'm not. So, it's tough. <laughs> like, the gaming content, gaming journalism right now is tough. And to your point, like, I think someone asked me in the last show, have, like, critics um, and reviews gotten soft? And I said, yes, they have. Everything's a 7 to 10 now. Everyone's afraid to use the whole scale. So, I think things have changed, and I think they've just generally changed for the worse. Now, do I, can I appreciate that there's value in things like Let's Plays, which is so, something that's kind of a materialized in the last decade? Sure. Absolutely. Like, I can understand why you could watch somebody play a game for two hours or whatever, and then that helps you decide whether you want to buy a game or not. But that's two hours! You committed two hours to deciding whether you want to buy a game or not, when you could do it in five or seven minutes with a video review or watch our discussion on it on Game Face and get the information in 20 minutes. So is that really a good way to figure out whether you want to buy a game or not? I guess it depends on how much you value your time. And I'll tell you this, the older you get, the more you value your time. The more you realize the phrase, time is money, actually means something. But look, 
If you have nothing to do and you can sit around and watch somebody else play a video game for two hours to figure out whether you actually want to buy it or not, I'm glad you're in that position in life, but I have never been in that position in life where I can just burn two hours watching somebody else play a game. So do I understand that there's value in that stuff? Yes. Do I think it's efficient? Hell no. I think it's completely inefficient. And I also would argue that I don't think Let's Plays are selling a lot of games. I, If you watch somebody else play a game for two hours, are you really going to go buy that game? Maybe if it's 80 hours long or whatever, but most games aren't. So after you've watched someone else play 20% of a game, are you really going to go spend the money to play the last 80%? I have my doubts about that. So anyway, um, I do not think games journalism is better. I think people take it less seriously, even on the the site side where, you know, real journalists work at GameSpot and IGN. I just... It, I don't have discussions with fellow journalists like I used to. Like, we used to go to events, and we'd talk about editorial integrity at the events. Things that other outlets were doing that we thought were questionable, things that we felt that we did where we screwed up and we stepped over the line. I don't hear those discussions at all anymore. So, it has changed a lot. I feel like it's changed for the worse. Um, I wish you guys would open your minds a little more to some different ideas and content. Um, I just feel like everything anymore is comfort food and i get it we're still kind of in this pandemic thing and i feel when things like that happen everybody kind of retreats to their safe spaces so to speak um, but we're kind of coming out of it and i don't really see the change in attitudes as far as content is concerned so this answer was probably way too long <laughs> but anytime you ask me about this stuff i'm going to get wound up about it um, but to answer your question i think games journalism has gotten worse over the last decade i think people take it less seriously i don't think that most players consumers have their minds open to consume new types of content or new ideas. Um, I, I just don't think it's good. I don't think it's headed in a good direction. I think it needs to change. But will it? Probably not. But ultimately, it's up to you. Hi Our next question comes from Sifted from Mermison. What is your favorite original soundtrack in a video game? Have you ever purchased any video game soundtracks or listened to them when not playing the game? I was just playing Returnal the other day and found out that the Haxen Cloak was a composer. Good stuff. Regarding English artists, I was listening to Slow Dive at work today and was wondering what you think about their latest album from 2017. I remember that you're a big fan. How does it compare to their earlier albums? Which of their albums is your favorite? Okay, video game OSTs. First, I will tell you that I have never bought a single OST in my life. Not one. Um, and a big part of that is because I used to get them all sent to me for free. <laughs> I... Literally, every game that they would send me, they would also send me a CD of the OST, generally. Well, probably 70% of the review code they would send me, they'd send us the OST with it. So, a lot of them I never even opened. I probably have 100 video game OSTs, something like that, um, that are in, still in shrink wrap and brand new. So, I think that tells you all you need to know about how much I like video game OST music, because... Video game OSTs are made to be a bed in a video game that you hear, in some cases, for 30 or 40 hours. They're not written like pop songs where you have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, end of song. It's these long, drawn-out compositions that sound and work great in the context of playing a video game, but I don't really enjoy them to listen to because they don't have hooks. I listen to music for hooks, and people are always like, well, what's a hook? A hook is a sequence of notes or chords that, that you remember, 
I guess is the best way to put it, that are extremely memorable. They're the earworms. They're the parts of the songs that, like, after you've heard a song a few times, you keep singing in your head. That's a hook. There are no hooks in video game OSTs. There are these dirges or just sound beds that just kind of lay underneath the action, and maybe it ramps up a little bit when the action gets intense or whatever. They, again, they work great within the context of video games, but they do not work great when you're just listening to them. So I am not like a gigantic fan of video game OSTs, even though I have a ton of them. And may, they may be something also when I'm ready to retire, I end up selling those OSTs because they are like straight from the publisher, still shrink wrapped, etc., etc. So I do not have an affinity for OSTs. You're asking me what my favorite OST is. And I think I've answered this before, um, is Fantasy Star Online. It's my favorite OST for any game ever. Um, the opening song for the uh, the opening splash screen for that game, I can still hear it perfectly in my head, um, and I love it. So that is my favorite OST. Now on to Slow Dive. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because some most people are like, who the hell is Slow Dive? <laughs> um, so I'll try to be as quick as I can. Slow Dive is my favorite band. They are my favorite band ever, followed closely by Joy Division and New Order. Um, they are a shoegaze band, and the bands in this subgenre are called shoegaze because they have so many effects pedals that most of the time when they play live, they spend looking down at their shoes trying to figure out which pedal they need to push to change the sound of their guitar for the next part of the song. Bands like Slow Dive, My Bloody Valentine, Swerve Driver, Ride, all these bands were in like the mid to late 90s. So they're old. So a lot of people don't know who the hell Slow Dive is. So here's the thing. Slow Dive, all their first albums before they reformed a couple years ago are from the 90s. And their music still sounds like it was made yesterday. And I have been a fan for forever. They broke up in the 90s. I never got to see them live. And like I'm like their biggest fan. So when they finally got back together, it was like it was a big story in underground music, but all of you guys probably didn't even know what was going on. So anyway, I am like the hugest fan. In fact, on their Facebook page, I am like their super fan. <laughs> Cuz I like like all of their posts or whatever, and I've earned the designation of slow dive super fan on Facebook. But anyway, um, I am a gigantic fan. I love all their albums, and I could go on and on. I know the history of all their albums and how they were recorded and how people left the band and then came back, and then they made an album called Pygmalion that was, like, all electronic, and that, like, ended the band because the band was a guitar band, and suddenly they came to record an album and there was nothing for them to do. The guy behind Slow Dive is a guy named Neil Halstead. I believe he is one of the best songwriters of my generation. His songs, I can't even put them into words. They're... The way he writes music, it's all beautiful and sad in some ways, but they're just filled with hooks. <laughs> I was talking about it earlier. Like, there's just these moments in all his songs that just, like, hit you, like, right in the heart. So he also does, like, solo acoustic albums. Check him out. Again, Neil Halstead, he's a genius. Again, one of the best songwriters of my generation. 
and he is the driving force behind Slow Dive. So whatever he says or does, everyone falls in line. They got back together in 2017, launched an album. Now they're recording another one. It's been taken forever. It's now five years after that one. Who knows if we'll get another album. So to answer your question, the best Slow Dive album is Suvlaki. There's no question about that. It is considered one of like the top 30 indie records of all time. Um, if you're like, hey, what is this band Chance talking about? Just go to Spotify and just listen to Slow Dive Sovlaki. If you don't like that album, you're not going to like Slow Dive. I can tell you that right now. Their new album that came out in 2017, I was pleasantly surprised by it because everyone was skeptical. Like, they haven't been around in, like, it had been, I don't know, like 17 years or something since they had made any music. People were afraid it was going to suck. It does not suck. There are absolutely some bangers on that album. Now, is it as good as Sovlaki? Nope. <laughs> it's not. It's just not. But it is still really good. And that album is self-titled. is just Slow Dive, Slow Dive. Um, we'll see if their new album is coming out. But um, I will say this. like it's, They're not for everybody. But for a certain type of person, Slow Dive can become your favorite band. <laughs> All right. Our last question on today's episode comes from Lashik. I don't know if I've heard you speak at length on the gaming magazines in the 90s. They were such a huge deal before everything went online. Which did you think were the best and worst at the time? Do you feel any different in hindsight or any of those editors still in the industry? Yep, something else from my prior life that a lot of people today have no understanding of is the whole gaming magazine culture that uh, was prevalent in the 90s. Um, I had a lot of favorite magazines. Um, EGM is my absolute favorite. Uh, and the reason I would say that is because they were hard on their reviews. They were harsh. So you knew that if a game got a good score there that it was worth playing, or at least worth investigating, depending on like what your interests are and what genres you like or you didn't like, or what console you had or didn't have. Um, so EGM was my favorite. I also liked their writing style. It was a little schlocky, a little tongue-in-cheek. It had some comedy in there. It was lighthearted. They had all these personas in the magazine, like Sushi X and all these people. They're like, nobody knows who he is. And there was mystery around the magazine. Their April Fool's jokes were legendary. They were the ones that started the whole video game April Fool's joke. EGM, I think most people will argue, Electronic Gaming Monthly, is the best gaming magazine ever. I don't think most people would dispute that. Now, there's Next Gen Magazine, and that was like the slicker magazine that had like the better screenshots, and the writing was probably a little bit better, but not as fun. Um, and then there was Game Fan. Like a lot of people remember Game Fan because they made like little cartoons of all their editors and. They had some like quirky ways that they actually did their coverage. And I'll say this, for the time, they were kind of the most innovative in how they did their content. However, I almost always disagree with their review scores. So um, I think the crux of why you read gaming magazines back then was for reviews, because you couldn't go online and figure out whether a game was good or not. You had to read magazines. So the most important part of those magazines back then to me were their reviews. Um, and that's where I felt Game Fan came up short. So... People may ask, what do you think about Game Informer? Like, I never resonated with Game Informer. And then once they had that deal with GameStop where people were just giving it away at the stores. Like, like, no offense, I'm friends with some of the people that have worked there for a long time. And I know they're good people. And I know they do care about editorial integrity. But there was just always that soft line there that made me uneasy. Because, you know, they have their cover story. And then you see the ads for the game. It's the cover story inside the magazine and blah, blah, blah. I just feel like there was some room for shenanigans there and I don't know if there were but I just I'll be honest with you I just didn't really trust it so EGM favorite magazine now you're asking if some editors are still around yes like almost everybody who worked for EGM back in the day is still in the industry in some capacity Dan Shu works at Blizzard now um 
let's see, Milkman, he still writes for Polygon at times. He also now develops VR games along with Sam Kennedy, who also used to work through that whole thing. John Davidson, who used to work at Official PlayStation Magazine. He's now like the EIC or the executive editor at IGN. They're all still around, most of them. Andy Eddy, he now works at uh, PlayStation. He like works on the PlayStation blog. So most of the people who worked at those magazines are still working in the industry in some capacity. And it's great to see, but it's not surprising either because... Back then, if you wanted a job in this industry, you had to have passion. And I don't mean like, yeah, I like games. I mean like you never get sick of games passion. Like what I have. I'll be honest with you, I have it. And maybe it's a curse, I don't know. But that's what you have to have because everybody wants your job. So if you don't have a lot of energy for what you're doing and you aren't ready to just grind it out, you're going to get left in the dust or you're just not going to get hired. So the people who had those jobs back then, they were the most passionate and it shows because they're still passionate about games and they're still working in the industry today. Now, the one magazine I do want to bring up before we go is Nintendo Power Magazine. Now, their reviews were never reliable and I never trusted their reviews, but if you were into playing Nintendo's games, it was the best magazine to get because they would keep a lot of information for Nintendo Power that they wouldn't share with the rest of the press at the other magazines. So you could get like exclusive information in Nintendo Power. Um, their game guides were really good back when, you know, people needed walkthroughs because there was no internet. Um, so, you know, Nintendo Power is a special place in my heart. I think I had a subscription to that for five or six years or whatever. It was cool too because the spines on the magazines, if you stack them up, they would eventually create a full picture. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is kind of sad that magazines are gone now, except for Game Informer. And there's a couple magazines in uh, the UK still. But they're mostly yesterday's news. And it is something from the industry that I do miss a good bit. All right, that's it for this episode of Ask Shane Anything. A longer episode. It's going to be fun editing this one. It's going to take a while. Uh, but we did have that extra question hanging around there. And I figured I'd just slide it right into this episode. We will be asking for new questions for Ask Shane Anything very soon. And I hope some of you who have never asked a question will get off the sidelines and get involved. It would be great. Uh, if you haven't noticed, we do have like a group of... 40 or 50 people who tend to ask me most of the questions for Ask Shane Anything. It would be great if some of you people who haven't asked before would get off the sidelines and uh, get involved in the show. But if not, that's no big deal. I hope you're at least enjoying watching. Now again, this show is a, re a reward for all our patrons. Everybody gets to watch it on day one, but only the people who pledge at the Ask Shane tier or higher, which is $7 a month, get to ask questions for the show. So if you want to get involved, bump up that pledge to 7 bucks. ask me a question, and I'll try to get to it. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.